Hi friends, we are back again and this week we're talking about life hacks but perhaps with a little bit of a different angle. Carl Sederstrom is an associate professor at Stockholm Business School, part of Stockholm University, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic and Harvard Business Review amongst many others. Carl spent 12 months immersed in the human optimization movement him and his co-author, Andre Spicer, dedicated one month of the year to a different area of their life and trying to optimise it as much as possible. This is the absolute zenith Mount Everest of trying to optimise your life and the experiences that Carl went through have elicited some really, really interesting results. He'll tell us exactly what out of 12 months of pure optimization was the single best tool that he came across, how he was able to optimize his sex, his relationships, his vanity, his looks, his finances, and a whole bunch of other things. And then we move on to his new book, which is called The Happiness Fantasy. Now, recently we've discussed happiness quite a bit with Susanna Hallinan and in the Q&A that I did with Johnny and Yusuf. And it's uh, interesting to see Carl's approach to it. He makes a strong case that happiness isn't something that any of us should be aiming for and that there are much more worthy terms that would make us much more fulfilled and content within life. I'm going to leave it there. I won't present any spoilers for the rest of the episode, but I wanted to give another shout out to Scott McGrath, who sent in a screenshot of him sending out on another company internal intranet one of our podcast episodes. Now, thanks very much for that, Scott. I really appreciate it. Again, if you do manage to share one of the episodes on a big network, please let me know and I'll be able to give you a shout out on a future episode. Coming up soon, we have got How to Survive University, me, Johnny and Yusuf talking about that, and the long-awaited Life Fails 101 edition, which is essentially the antithesis to our very slick approach to human optimization. So there's lots of exciting stuff coming up. But for now, here's Carl. Mr. Carl Cedarstrom, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. All the way from the increasingly cold England at the moment. Where are you in the world? I'm uh, in the increasingly cold uh, Sweden, uh, <laughs> Stockholm to be precise. Very nice. You're an associate professor at Stockholm Business School, right? That's right, which is part of Stockholm University. Fantastic. For the listeners at home, could you give us a little bit of a background to yourself, please? All right. Um, well, i live in Sweden, been living in, in the UK, in Cardiff for a few years, but now based here, live in Stockholm, two children, a wife, and the author of uh, uh, a few books, which I believe we will talk a little bit about. What else can I tell you? That's it, really, I think, that, that, that would be necessary to know. <laughs> that's the, uh, that's for, the brief, the, the zeitgeist tape to Carl Cedarstrom, I like it. <laughs> did you... Uh, did you managed to tune your hearing into the Welsh accent very quickly when you were over there? Well, I mean, I could I could still now today 
spot it and recognize it quite easily, much more easily than before. But I was never able to imitate it or, or speak anything <laughs> like the, the Welsh accent. It's very, it's very subtle. I mean, I, I'm, you know, my English is, is just uh, too inferior to imitate any kind of uh, accent. Uh, just a Swedish, maybe, maybe I could do a, a, a French, German, or, or Danish accent if I, I really you. try to. I got you. Well, I won't. Uh, I won't make you jump through that hurdle today. Thanks. That's okay. Um, so I want to get straight into it. Um, you have had an interesting journey with the uh, field of human optimization. Would that be fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as a lot of the listeners will know, we have our most popular series is a sequence of episodes called Life Hacks. And on those, we try and find tips and tricks, strategies and approaches for a productive and efficient life. And mm. you took the human optimization movement to an extreme for 12 months, yourself and your co-author and friend Andre Spicer. Is that right? That's right. I mean, the background to that project is that uh, both me and Andre, uh, two university professors who've spent just too much time in our life uh, in front of a computer sitting uh, on a chair um, in our offices and, and studying various things. And we've both been interested for a long time in the optimization movement. and We'd be interested in, in self-help culture. And we wrote a book a number of years ago called The Wellness Syndrome, mm-hmm. which was really a critical diagnosis of what we call a wellness society, a society where everyone is really sort of commanded, where there is an injunction to be well, to be happy, to be healthy, unless you, you know, live up to those uh, requirements you seen as uh, a worse person. So, I mean, this is really what it all began with many years ago. And we were interested in understanding this culture from a more sort of sociological, political and philosophical perspective. And then when that book came out in 2015, a number of people said, but look, guys, did you really try any of these things? And the truth was that we had rarely left our offices for the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. So I never tried, I, I, you know, I'd never been to a gym. I've never tried mindfulness. I really, I, I, I tried nothing really. So we thought, why not write a book where we start on January 1st and spend an entire year and try all of those things that we've written about from a more uh, theoretical uh perspective, a very sort of distanced approach, and just immerse ourselves into this culture and uh, do everything that a human being could possibly do to optimize every area of, of our lives. So we sat down together over lunch when I was visiting Andre in London, where he lives, and um, we thought out 12 sort of main broad categories of optimization areas, various okay. things that you could optimize in your life. And um, so we just uh, wrote down uh, these 12 categories, starting in January with productivity, mm-hmm. February, uh, optimizing the body. March was optimizing the brain, then relations and spirituality, then sex, enjoyment, money, creativity, uh, morality, uh, vanity. And uh, then finally trying to sort of work out what the sort of deeper or sort of wider implications of this project was. Uh, so that was the kind of optimization project which um, uh, took place in 2016, starting in January and ending mm-hmm. by the end of December. What was that like, living that year? 
<laughs> well, I think I think now it's 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 like you're you're in your forties and look look back uh, to your twenties and thinking that that was probably fun, but there's no way I would ever ever do it again. But it was, I mean, there, there were some things which which were quite quite interesting. I think on on a more sort of fundamental level, what it means to start playing with your life and start experimenting with various aspects of your life, which really uh, allows you to do things you, which you would uh, normally. Uh, not to and I think also for us doing this thing together really helped because uh, we pushed ourselves to do things we we would never have dreamt of doing uh, otherwise and it was also something strangely comforting waking up uh, every morning and knowing exactly what it was that you were supposed to do and uh, some people said that one month was a very it's a very short period of time and there's no way you could optimize an hour in one month time which is true, mm-hmm. but also you realize when you do that, how long <laughs> a month is. Yeah, and, I uh, and I think, you know, in, in, during many of these months, it felt as though they would never, never end. <laughs> <laughs> so of, of all of the areas that you moved through, which one was the most trying or which one did you find to be the either most difficult or most uncomfortable? Yes, yeah, sex, definitely. was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and uh, I'm pretty sure Andrew would have uh, said uh, sex as well. No, that was really the most difficult one. And also, since we're both married, we have to we have to try and find alternative routes to go down. And for me, <laughs> was to try and uh, optimize masturbation, which you know sounds absolutely outrageous. But of course, it turns out that there's a whole body of literature and gurus and you know professional wankers who would tell you how to optimize <laughs> i'm pretty certain that i've worked with some professional wankers in my time actually yeah and you know it's, it's fascinating when you begin listening to them because they would really see life as being a sort of pre and uh, post um you know learning to become a sort of um sexual kung fu master which means that you could um you know master multiple uh orgasms and uh you know reject on a metaphysical level almost um the uh, ejaculation and instead sort of embrace orgasm as this uh, uh very powerful energy that is opposed to greater than know. the physical the physical manifestation that it is itself <laughs> so i yeah. need to i want to ask a question that i'm sure a lot of uh girlfriends and wives at home are thinking which is what did your girlfriends or wives what did they think about the the year that you were doing were they just sort of turning over in bed at night and hoping that you weren't going to wake them up to something else mental in the morning or what 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 was the the sentiment yeah i mean i think i think my my wife more than anything was really tired of of hearing that question (laughs) over and over again and uh, I think I think uh, the most the most uh, uh, testing bit really was people around asking, you know, how do you feel about this? Uh, what I tried to do was to, you know, when you put yourself through an, year, a year long experiment of this kind, you need to be very careful about the things you're ready to sacrifice and the mm-hmm. things you don't want to sacrifice. And I think in my case, the family was was very important. So I tried to keep the the project and the experiments uh whenever possible within uh you know working uh, or office hours so, so you can keep speak. keep the family life insulated so to speak from the from the experiment i try to of course i i i, I didn't a little yeah, bit of overspill successfully. a little bit of overspill here and there i'm gonna guess yeah yeah <laughs> 
So we've talked about one of the the lower points of the journey. What were some of the the real highlights that you took from it? Can you tell us? Can you tell us anything that you thought was really really good that you went through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of it. I mean, okay. So I mean, one of the things that really worked was uh, maximizing uh, productivity. So so the book that you were supposed to interview me about the the happiness fantasy it's a book mm. that 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 was the book that i had to write in one month's time um so this was the first um the first test was to see if we could uh if we could finish an academic book in in the period of one month from, from scratch uh well i had when starting i had about uh i think one chapter finished and had to finished five chapters so i think pretty much well say 80 percent of the book i had to write i had to write plus then and go back through it all again and yeah i mean i did send it off to the publisher which i had which was on the contract and you know this is just going to ruin the whole story now but (laughs) they they rejected the manuscript when they when they saw it oh no (laughs) (laughs) but but uh uh and then i was just and an and interesting thing is, uh, okay, so, so this is what happens. I wake up uh, January 1, and uh, I know that in 31 days, I need to write this freaking book. And uh, there's really no no time to lose. And um, so what I do is I meet a sort of productivity coach, and he gives me a series of, of really helpful advice. And I think the advice I would really recommend to everyone, especially if they work with writing or uh, many other sort of creative tasks is uh, the Pomodoro technique, which may sound very, you know, simple, almost, uh, you know, uh, silly, but it's, it's really fantastic. And, and I would say if there's, if there's one thing that really came out of this year, which I still use on a daily basis, it is the Pomodoro technique, which very simply means that you sit down and work in a very concentrated fashion for 25 minutes, and then there's a small beep from your app or whatever, or if you use just a, um, an egg clock and uh, oh, sorry, egg timer. And then uh, you take a five minute break. And the rule, which I think is very important to follow, is that when you take the break, you should do nothing. Ideally, just stare out the window or on a boiling kettle. And as soon as the five minute break is over, you sit down again. Mm-hmm. And this may sound really counterintuitive. So let's say you're in the middle of a sentence, you know, crafting a sentence and things are going really, really well. And then the beep goes. Of course, you know, you would think that I should sit here and, and you know, let this sort of creative flow uh, continue. But I, I, I think if you just stand up, take the break, and then after five minutes, go back again, you know exactly where to start. And then you kind of recuperate it enough so you could keep going. And it's interesting if you do this over the course of, of a day, because I think the first uh, five or six Pomodoros, you think that, okay, I don't really need to take a break now, but it really gives you the stamina to carry on working for a much longer period of time and mm-hmm. still in a, a concentrated fashion. So that, and also the addition of, of some medications, which I was experimenting with, which worked really well, but uh, that was really the, the key to getting the, the, book, the book done, even though 
it's fairly short <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was rejected by the first publisher oh dear and uh but the the finished project pro- product the one i've sent to you has, has I, I did have to work it over uh last autumn anyway but uh, uh so yeah i think uh if, if i had to single out one thing that really worked over the course of that year i'd say productivity well that's uh, the pomodoro technique is a common theme I'm, i i promise to the listeners at home that we're not sponsored by the pomodoro technique but the uh there seems to be it, it definitely seems to be a tool of choice for writers and creative types dr ewan lawson who i did a podcast with that was uh, a lot to do with the ergonomics of your desk environment your general working environment he said that he could go back through 150 pomodoros that he did and he could track absolutely everything he'd done during his mm. contribution to the book that he wrote, which he co-authored mm. and he could go back through and he actually came up with, it's interesting that you, you touched on looking out of the window because mm. he came up with a rule called the 20, 20, 20 rule, which I guess with a Pomodoro would be the 25, 20, 20. But what mm. he talks about is um, refocusing the eyes on an object which is 20 feet away for 20 seconds every 20 minutes. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons for this is to reset the uh, oculus muscles within the, mm-hmm. with, within the eye um, to reduce eye strain, reduce tension headaches, and a few other bits and pieces. But I, since that and over the last six months, have tried to implement the Pomodoro technique as much as I can. And mm-hmm. for anyone who is listening they will know that we are a massive fan of the Pomodoro technique for productivity. I think time boxing anything like Parkinson's law is just, it's like one of, it's like gravity, right? I think for a lot of people, it's just something that you cannot get around work expands to fill the time given for it. And Mm. when you give yourself that countdown clock in the corner of the screen or the, the little Mm. turning away egg timer or whatever it is, it just reminds you, it usually reminds you how much fucking time you're wasting, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, it, it was really remarkable because uh, I was, f- for every chapter I was writing, I was just, you know, in the app, you could choose what activity you're yeah. going to spend that Pomodoro on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I uh, I could see when the book was done that I had spent almost exactly the same amount of Pomodoros on each chapter uh which is is really quite strange when when you think about it but it means there really is some kind of i think sort of intuitive process that really works if you just make sure to sit in front of the computer and don't <laughs> actually do actually do your fucking work that's right that's right <laughs> so getting on to the larger topic of optimization overall at the moment have you have you managed to come to a conclusion about why there is a modern day obsession with optimization? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, by the end of uh, des- the desperately seeking book, um, I I kind of I was left with sort of three three theories, and and the first one is that there is a deeply uh, there's a deep human desire to be someone else or somewhere else basically just to to escape the confines of of who you are Mm. and uh i think everyone is 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 born with you know multiple dreams of of what you could 
become. And I think that's just something something deeply human. So, of course, optimization or, or self-help, for that matter, uh, promises, and uh, that is really uh, powerful, is that you could live a different life. I mean, your life could be different from how it looks now. So I think that's a very, very strong, uh, deeply human uh, impulse. And then the second uh, theory is that um, really now we, we live in a time where uh, we're expected to do these things. I mean, I think we do live in a culture which is very individualized and we are being trained at an early age in school and elsewhere to begin to think of ourselves in terms of uh, what we can do uh, in relationship to um the sort of the market economy. I mean, what are we going to do when we grow up? How are we going to make money? And not only in terms of what are you going to become in terms of your your trade, your occupation, but you know what are the kind of creative and innovative ways that you could um, think about sort of remaking yourself as uh, a valuable commodity. So I think mm. there's a kind of um, commodification of of life. And, and where we're really expected <laughs> to... That's a really good way to put it, the commodif- commodification of life. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, and we, we're really so indoctrinated into think, thinking about what can produce value and where there's really no distinction between the work that we do and the person that we are. And it's not only working on other things, but working on ourselves. So I think the whole sort of optimization culture is very strongly linked to that kind of competitive element of uh, modern day capitalism. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of second theory. And then the third theory is, is also a very sort of classic one, which I think is uh, uh, escape from death, really. And I mean, I don't say that uh, in a sort of facetious way or, or that uh, there's something wrong with escaping death. I think we're, we're all trying to escape. Nobody death wants in, to in die. Different ways. Nobody wants to die. And uh, But there, there are different ways, obviously, to escape death. But I mean, if you take one of the more radical things I did during the optimization, uh, uh, the, the year of optimization, it was to have plastic surgery. So this was a month where I was going to uh, spend every day and all the money I had to try and become as beautiful as, as possible. So I went to um, one of these clinics where you get injections, you know, um, it's called Restylane, these sort of filler injections. Okay. So I was going to get a sort of broader and sort of sharper um, uh, uh, um, what, um, jawline. A jawline, that's right, a sharper yep. jawline. And, <laughs> and you know, when, when I come in there, uh, there's this woman in a white robe and she looks at me and I tell her I want to be as beautiful as, as possible and, you know, <laughs> she looks at me and, you know, for her that's a perfectly normal question and she moves me over to the uh, mirror and I, I look in the mirror and she says, well, you have a slightly boyish look so maybe we could try and make you look a little bit more like uh, George Clooney <laughs> and uh, I've been thinking more of something like uh, 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 Cristiano Ronaldo or Justin yep. Bieber, yep, but yep, I thought yep. George Clooney sounds great, so I went for the for the big big jawline, the full George Clooney makeover, the full the full George Clooney makeover. But but I mean, if you go into a clinic like that, and also this this woman who I met, who it was absolutely impossible to say how old she was because you <laughs> couldn't you couldn't see a wrinkle anywhere. Uh, in, in her face or any other people I, I met in, in that clinic. And, and obviously that's a way of escaping death. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could, you could see how different forms of, of exercise 
I was going to a CrossFit gym uh, membership, which uh, lasted until just a few months ago. Uh, it was getting too expensive. But that is also a place where you meet uh, 40, 50, sometimes 60-year-old people who really believe that they are going to be younger. I mean, they, they take all of these different fitness tests, which will tell them that, you know, from a bodily perspective, physical perspective, they're only 20 or 25. Mm-hmm. I think, again, that is a way of trying to escape death. And uh, uh, so I think all of these different activities of, of optimization, I think even when it comes to, in part, optimizing productivity, you really want uh, to be able to do do all of these things in life before life is over. Totally. So again, that's, uh, that's a form of, of escaping death. Again, so I mean, I'd, I'd say those are the sort of three sort of broad uh, models I could, could think of. And then my, my friend Andre said, uh, when we had a discussion about this by the end of the year, he, he thought it was also about escaping, especially, you know, if you're a middle-aged person, uh, as we are with, with families. So for him, it was also a way of escaping the family. It was a way of escaping yourself as well. I mean, that, I think that normality of human life almost. That's right. The normality of human life and also uh, the the distress uh, and the anxiety that a lot of people feel in those you know everyday uh, life situations. Mm. So you've touched on something. I, I promised to the listeners at home that we haven't shared notes before we did this, but you've touched on something I really wanted to get to. Do you think that optimization is people searching for meaning in life through progression, that overcoming an obstacle and chasing down a task is a good way of artificially inseminating a feeling of meaning in your life? Because when you reach the goal, it's the same as I want to get the bigger house. I want to have the bigger car. I want to do X, Y, and Z. I train in CrossFit gyms all the time. And a lot of the people that are there, they want that 200 kilo deadlift. They want that 120 kilo clean and jerk. And mm. you're like, okay, well, when you get there, all that you're doing is moving the, you're moving your PB up by five kilos and going for it again. Mm. The, there's a, there's got to be a broader question about what makes life worth living. And mm. is it these little, the, the little intermediary targets or are people using that as an escapism mechanism to, to forget the fact that the overarching that life a lot of the time for a lot of people is suffering. What, what's your mm. what's your take on that? Mm, that's uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think, I mean, we I think we need to put this in the perspective of how we are being uh, brought up today uh, in in school, and especially when it comes to the point, you know, when you're in your early twenties and you you need to start thinking about what you should do with your life. And we're really brought up, you know, um, through commercials and through a kind of business type thinking that uh, we need to progress in some ways our lives should be like that sort of toothpaste commercial when you see how wonderfully uh, rich and healthy your uh, teeth become after using a toothpaste or your hair become after using a Mm -hmm. a shampoo Mm -hmm. and again when it comes to work and reading any kind of uh, you know business related literature i'm from a business school which is also partly why i'm interested in this mm-hmm. but how are we really being taught and trained trained into thinking that everything needs to progress but then we find ourselves in a situation today where people who either are looking for jobs and doing everything they can to sell whatever resources they have the sort of human resources on the market that is usually quite 
cold and you don't really know what to do in order to uh, progress and to make it. And also for people who do have work, uh, they may be working in marketing or sales and they may be working their uh, ass off and still by the end of the day, they're not really sure when their effort really paid off or not. Yeah. But then when it comes to the gym now, you step into a CrossFit gym and you're there and you struggle and you fight and you sweat and you really put in all of the hard labor mm-hmm. and it pays off. Mm-hmm. I think it's really one of the few areas in life today where you can see progress. You've got a much um, more you've got a much more direct line of uh, causation between your efforts put in and the results that come out the other end. Totally right. Exactly. You need to, you need to navigate the the office politics. You need to grease the right shoulders, and there's a lot more hurdles to get over. I think for some yeah. people, that's why CrossFit is incredibly liberating because people who maybe aren't at the top of their game in terms of societal values for what their particular job is can go in. And if they've been working their ass off and you as a successful businessman have been being lazy, they're going to wipe the floor with you in the workout today. And it mm. evens it evens the playing field in an incredibly fair way. Um, yeah. But I think one of the things that you touched on was really, really interesting was about this, um, the, the fact that someone's progression and their they're almost inseparable from their job, right? I mean, what's one of the first things when you meet somebody? Hi, what's your name? What do you do? Mm. You know, you, you are your job. That's right. You are your job. And then at the same time, uh, you, we also know that most people find their jobs uh, essentially meaningless. So you have David Graeber who came out with a book, Bullshit Jobs. And um, this was based on an essay he wrote a few years ago. So a bullshit job is a job that is not only meaningless, for you, but you consider the job to be meaningless uh, on a more fundamental social political level. It In other words, has no use at all. If that job would not exist, the world would either be better off or uh, <laughs> as good. <laughs> at least the same. Wow. Right. And uh, they followed up uh, after this essay, uh, they made a, a survey, a YouGov survey, which showed that something like 37% of uh, UK uh, workers find their jobs to be bullshit. And I think this is hugely relevant uh, when understanding the commitment and the addiction that a lot of people have to gym culture, that we're supposed to find meaning and again, uh, progression. And we're supposed to be able to display that progression and show people that we are progressing. We're supposed to do that in our working life. But it's just really, really difficult for most people to to be able to do that. I mean, if if you do find yourself in a a so-called bullshit job, how are you going to be able to do that? And I think this is a a great frustration for for a lot of people. And uh, really, that tells tells us a lot about how uh, you know our culture is is shaped today where work is so essential I mean the only way to really be able to convincingly tell someone else that you have a meaningful life is to say that you do this meaningful work or that you are your work in, mm, in some respect yeah yeah you're totally correct there I think what's what's really insidious about it is that someone's uh, position within a hierarchical structure or how their job 
um, is regarded by society at large becomes conflated with their value to society. Like I know an awful lot of people, and I'm sure that you do as well, who are commercially incredibly successful, but I don't think that they add an awful lot to society. I don't think they have a massive amount of value to add. However, I've also got some friends who are struggling students or singers who can't make it, can't haven't made a break yet, but that add so much value to my life. I think they're fantastic fantastic members of society and their value in in quotation marks is in my eyes significantly higher and it's this mm. conflation of value of a uh, job status with value in society that seems it seems we should treat that with a lot of trepidation i think mm, mm. yeah i agree i think one of the other things that's interesting to to kind of bookend the optimization bit coming at it from the other angle you're a, a professor of business and in business the way that the way that companies have become better or more effective over the years is that you try and approach you look at what works remodel that you refine it and then rinse and repeat over time mm. that it's split testing right it's a, a a way of the commercial world essentially emulating what happens in the evolutionary world mm-hmm. and to one degree, there must be more effective ways and less effective ways to operate within the world. There must be good ways to exist as a human and there must be bad ways or there must be better ways and worse ways are probably a more effective way of saying it. So is this optimization movement a bit of a bastardization of that somehow? Is it where that's kind of become twisted? Well, so so one thing that really came out of the of the optimization project is that there are, I think, clear limitations of what can be optimized mm. and uh, what what areas allow themselves to to become optimized. Uh, so obviously, when it comes to say uh, productivity or, or making money or anything that would be of a more kind of practical or instrumental nature, you could optimize. But as soon as it comes to raising you know deeper philosophical question of what it means to be a human being what does it mean to be an ethical human being uh what does it mean to uh connect in a loving way with with other human beings then all of a sudden you see the algorithms (laughs) the apps uh all of these different sort of um operating systems to uh crash down they all break down very they would have very very little to uh, offer us. So, I mean, I think as much as we could find useful advice to help us through uh, the day, uh, I think the the danger, I mean, the great danger of optimization culture is that we begin losing sight of those deeper questions of what it means to be human and uh, what it is that we want to do with our lives. Because obviously, and this is kind of how you, you phrased your question previously, is that as soon as you've reached this target, or save up a bit of time by having implemented a new technique, then you use time that you've saved up to find more ways, <laughs> more techniques to save up more time. And then all of a sudden you have no freaking clue what to do with that time. And um, so I think that's that, that really is a, a great danger of applying these mechanisms to all areas of, of life. Now, I deeply believe there are things and very important things i'd say the most essential things in life are really so outside the scope outside the reach of optimization 
That's interesting. So you, you've touched on something there that I wanted to, to talk about as we move into the, the discussion on your new book to do with happiness. Mm. Is halfway between the two, is the optimization movement, is it to do with individual sovereignty versus more of a collective um, kind of altruistic community, society approached um desire to move everyone forward together is it uh, the isolation a byproduct of the 21st century and capitalism do you think um sorry so you you meant that the optimization movement would be one of these two alternatives or no the the optimization movement are people obsessing over the optimization movement because they no longer have that sense of community anymore okay yeah I, I, I guess you. Sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think clearly. I mean, this is what a lot of sociologists would would say, and and usually you would date this back to sort of the 1970s, and uh, uh, you have um, you know some some key reference points like Christopher Lash writing in the Culture of Narcissism. You have Philip Reef uh, a little bit earlier than that uh, speaking in the triumph of the therapeutic that really today we have lost uh, faith in these various institutions that used to give us meaning in life and those institutions would be the family would be uh, church typically would be work all of these different social institutions that shaped uh, and gave a sense of meaning to to our lives just crashed down and uh, instead, we are supposed to find out by ourselves what the meaning in, in life is. And you really see how this sort of the movement of the 1960s, which really had more of a kind of collective and political flavor to it, turned into something different in the 1970s. Now, these are very sort of generalized remarks that I do here, but they would be, be true at least <laughs> when, when looking at the sort of development of, of the self-health movement, and in particular, the many kind of um, these huge seminar trainings that popped up and became very popular in the 1970s, mm-hmm. where really the new emphasis was on the self and the authentic self. And the best one could do is to look inside and to forget about uh, the world and the injustices that may exist elsewhere. Because now when you're here with yourself, it's only the cosmic universe and yourself that that matters. And this was the kind of stuff that was being trained uh, at a very famous uh, seminar that I write about in the book called EST, called uh, Earhart Seminar Training, where um, I can't remember now, but some, something like 700,000 people, I believe, oh my God. Uh, went there between uh, 1971 uh, and 1984. And really, the, <laughs> the, the message that uh, people would receive during these very intensive week, uh, weekend-long trainings is that there are no victims in the world. That was a very, very crucial point. And that uh, nothing in your life is decided. Everything could be uh, changed and uh, there would be uh, no excuses for for anything. So this was like a new kind of, uh, it was a new version that sort of became a sort of global or, or, or at least a national in the U.S. phenomenon. This, this of course, spread to many other countries as well, but which uh, had the kind of uh, the same message 
that you find in the self-help books of the 1930s, you know, Norman Vincent Peale, How to Win Friends and Influence People, yeah. uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which also interest, but but the kind of interesting uh, parallel there is that they came out at the back of the Great Depression, and mm-hmm. this was a time when people really had to believe that there was some kind of, of hope, you know, in the face of uh, a very sort of dark and depressing feeling of, of hopelessness. But interestingly, in the 1970s, and this is after a time of, you know, three decades of economic growth, mm-hmm. uh, you have uh, a new uh, generation of relatively wealthy middle-class people and there's a wonderful essay written by Tom Wolfe that came out in 1976 that said that what all of these people did when they finally get a little bit of money was to take them and run and went off to places like the SLN Institute and Est to have what you call a, um, a lube job uh, for <laughs> the soul. So, yeah. so and every, the only thing that really mattered was me, myself, and I. And I kind of... Um, uh, lifting up and hailing the uh, uh, selfishness mm-hmm. and uh, being egocentric was all of a sudden a, a virtue rather yeah. than a vice. Yeah. Isn't it weird that, uh, uh, oddly, a byproduct of liberation has become isolation? Yes, yes. Um, the, Very true. It seems here one of the things that you've you've come across there is that individual agency and freedom to make your own decisions – and this limitless, bottomless, sideless, topless world that you can create for yourself makes you the master of your own fate. But it also means that all of your failures and successes are entirely yours to bear. And as we all know, mm. there's, luck and environment play a huge part in everything that goes on. If you were born in Rwanda in a, a terrible period during the 90s when there's a massacre going on, like, that's not your mm. fault. Like You're not the master of your own fate there. You haven't died murdered by bandits on the back of jeeps because mm. you weren't sufficiently well-educated or something. You're doing it because that's what the situation the, the situation that occurred is what was going on. So I guess that, yeah. that leads us very nicely into the next topic, which is to do with happiness. Um, mm. So, is is it a crisis of of uh, a lack of meaning that's leading to happiness being a uh, almost replaced with progression and and optimization at the moment? Could you could you see a a time a paradigm or a spectrum, so to speak, between the two books? Well, I mean, first of all, I don't believe uh, in happiness. I mean, in the sense that there is a a true uh, definition of, of happiness, so that you could could measure happiness in in any uh, clear or, or scientific way. And um, if you look at it historically, uh, there's a really uh, rich and um, uh, strange uh, conceptual development. And uh, you could see how his, you know, if you look down the history, you could see how happiness have meant all different kinds of things in different eras. How so? Um, well, I mean, if you take the, in ancient Greece, for example, and if you take uh, the way Aristotle understood happiness, it was very strongly connected to developing a set of virtues. Uh, it could be to become more courageous and become brave or, you know, to become a better human being. But very uh, fundamental to the belief of happiness at that time was that true and complete happiness could only be enjoyed by the gods. Uh, 
not by human beings. The best that human beings could do would be to strive for happiness, but never to attain happiness. And that notion of happiness remains for a very, very long time. I mean, it remains during the Middle Ages, at which point happiness did not really exist at all in the um, life on Earth, but only in the afterlife, in heaven. Mm. So true and complete happiness was, again, something that was beyond um, what the human could could achieve. And in the Renaissance, that was the first time that happiness started to become seen as something that humans could uh, not fully grasp, but something that they could glimpse at. Mm. And then it's in the Enlightenment and... Um, with uh, uh, interestingly philosophers like um, uh, Marquis de Sade, but um, also uh, Rousseau and others, where happiness becomes not only something that you could achieve, but something that you should achieve. So now, all of a sudden, happiness is something that is, uh, you know, something that, that, that we need to achieve. And interestingly, the, fir- the first thing that happens is that that itself creates a lot of trouble and a lot of misery, because when happiness is supposed to be there, supposed to be something that you could hold on to and live, then people start to, to feel miserable because they could not uh, achieve and, well, they, and they grasp it. S- they say that true agony is the person you are meeting the person you could have been right that's 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 the worst kind of hell and then rolling back to our last point when we were going through optimization this this individual agency making you the master of your own fate what does that mean that means you are Mm. not happy therefore you are unhappy and Mm. it's your fucking fault yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, but if you if if, if you carry on, it's uh, I mean, even into the twentieth century, I mean, the dominant understanding of happiness is that this is something that man, and this is what Freud said, uh, man, the human being, is not particularly well designed to uh, achieve or 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 be able to handle happiness. We're really good at unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Unhappiness comes from everywhere. It comes from our body, it comes from our surrounding, it comes from everywhere. Happiness, on the other hand, is very fleeting. It's very difficult to know where it comes from, when it comes. You know, you can't really hold on to it. So, ma- so the human being and happiness were never really uh, a couple made <laughs> for each other. Do you, do you then, agree with that? Um, I think I think I, I I do I do agree. I mean, I'm not I'm not always in bed with Freud, but I think when it comes to <laughs> I wouldn't to, ever want to be in bed with Freud. He had some very no. odd ideas about what happens in bed. Yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not jumping in bed with him. But what's interesting is that uh, in the 1920s, and this is uh, one what I write about in the, the the happiness book, the happiness fantasy, that uh, there's this other psychoanalyst who's really young at the time called Wilhelm Reich and he makes a great impression on Freud. Freud believes you know he's he's great but there's a very strong disagreement between the two which becomes very um, obvious after a while and that is how they see the relationship between uh, happiness and the, the self and also the relationship to society. So for Freud 
as I just said, you know, the the human being is not really cut out for happiness. Mm -hmm. And society's role is to, you know, keep the human being uh, under control. I mean, so we don't go berserk and do, uh, you know, go around and and, and slaughter people. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. his his view and why society is important. Reich, on the other hand, thought that society was really what uh, repressed the human being. And it was society's fault with all its rules and regulations and norms that people could not be as happy as they had the potential to be. And he thought that true happiness was about becoming liberated as a human being. Mm. It was to become authentic. It was to become yourself. And very, very uh, crucial to that process to become yourself is also to uh, free yourself sexually. And for him, it was to find your uh, org- uh, uh, orgastic uh, potency. In other words, be able to have uh, multiple <laughs> orgasms or or at least in a more uh, sort of abstract way to, to be free from various forms of sexual inhibitions. Was that, so was do, a, was, is that partnered with being polyamorous as well? Was he advocating multiple sexual partners? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, I mean, I mean, he would be... Uh, 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 in favor of that, and he hated family. He thought a family was a disease. He called this a disease, and called it uh, familitis. And uh, <laughs> but this was a, so. This is a really strange uh, guy who's wor- really worth to to, to look look into. And, you know, he, and he became more and more obsessed with his theories of uh, this orgastic uh, energy, and started to design what is called orgone accumulator which is this wooden box oh my god like one of these sort of looking like one of these old uh, telephone booths and okay. uh, they were made out of wood and then uh, coated with uh, some metals and you were supposed to stand inside of these uh, orgone accumulators and then receive the orgone energy and this then supposedly was going to to heal you make you whole make you authentic and make you sexual and all of this may sound nuts it sounds like scientology well uh (laughs) i mean it's it sounds nuts like scientology but but the interesting thing is that wilhelm wright becomes extraordinarily influential in places like big sur in california uh in the 1940s with uh uh you know, the kind of early uh, beat generation, uh, like, uh, so Henry Miller is one of the first people to really pick up uh, Wilhelm Reich and to find him as a guru and an inspiration for the new kind of bohemian lifestyle that was beginning to take form. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the SLN Institute started in 1961, Wilhelm Reich was one of the key people that uh, they were influenced by. So much of what we see from that point onwards, and here in this time, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, is really the first time where happiness becomes something that everyone is supposed to achieve. And you so, think, is, is that an artifact of Wilhelm's, Wilhelm's work, do you think? Uh, not, not, not only, but I mean, I think, I think the notion of happiness that we subscribe to today is is to a very large extent uh, shaped by some of those ideas that 
uh, Wilhelm Reich uh, developed in, in his work. And because if you think about uh, happiness, which I do in this book, as being uh, something that changes over time, but really what it does is that it mirrors a set of values that happen to be endorsed by that society in that particular time, mm -hmm. then really what is being favored today, and this sort of goes back to our previous conversation, is uh, to be authentic, right? You need to be yourself. You need to develop your own individual sort of unique core of, of who you are. I mean, that's really the essential thing of, of being human today. Mm -hmm. The second thing is uh, we need to live a life which is filled with, with pleasure. And uh, I mean, the entire sort of consumer uh, capitalism uh, is, I mean, the moral and uh, I mean, the moral and cultural foundation for consumer capitalism is, is hedonism. It is that we should be able to enjoy ourselves. Yeah. And then finally, I think uh, the third value, which is really key to understand how we are to how we uh, think about happiness today is uh, work and and whether or not we are you know successful through our work or if we're able to achieve ourselves th through this work so it's really there in at the Esalen Institute in the 1960s which Wilhelm Reich helped uh, inspire that you had new ideas such as the human potential movement that what we should do in order to become uh, true to ourselves and fully happy is to uh, uh, is to find and uh, that untapped potential within ourselves and to fully uh, develop uh, our our inner potential and that is really the kind of notion of, of happiness that we subscribe to still today but now uh, in in the era we live in now which is very different from how it was in the 1960s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the happiness fantasy consisting of these values is used, I believe, more often than not as a way uh, as, as as a way of of exploiting people yeah. or, or even uh, you know as a euphemism for for making us do things which we know is bad for us, such as <laughs> you know just work more or or and, and then. Uh, you know, brainwash ourselves and say that this is really what, what I want to do. Well, I think um, it, it's interesting that you touched on capitalism earlier on, that as soon as you have a desire for anything, inevitably that opens up a market for it. Mm. I recently recently did a podcast with um, Dan Harris's co-writer, Jeff Warren. And mm. on that podcast, we discussed the fact that meditation and mindfulness practice are supposed to be this, it's the dissolving of the ego right? It, it, it's it's complete openness, et cetera, et cetera. But as there's a, a move towards mindfulness on a societal level, that also means that there's the option for people to make money. And as soon as this is the option for people to make money off it, charlatans mm. appear. And mm. people who want to exploit others who want that in their life and think that it's going to give them meaning. So, you know, people chasing happiness, the demand, if the demand is there for something, the supply will not shoot shortly afterwards follow surely yeah i mean i think i think just one sort of short example or, or illustration uh, of how uh, ludicrous it has become today to to think about you know where where, where you would find instances of, of happiness or even authentic happiness mm -hmm. is a mm -hmm. uh, manger which you know about obviously living in the uk <laughs> the uh you know the uh the, the the fast food chain where 
as part of their work culture, the employees are supposed not just to be happy, you know, smile and greet the customers and, mm-hmm. and uh, take the money and give them a sandwich. They also need to do that authentically. And, okay. and that is when you, when you begin to see how these values, when they were first uh, developed, you know, in this case, then uh, with Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s, how they have been transformed through uh, market capitalism, through corporations, which, you know, very cunningly have been using uh, these words, but then twisted them and and, uh, uh, made use of them for for their own ends. That's really quite disturbing, isn't it? That you've you've got someone who is saying that you need to be authentically happy and by the way, the happiness that we're talking about is narrowly defined within the last hundred years or so. Mm. So of all, right. of all of the definitions of happiness that you've come across, have you got one which you have found to be closest to what you think happiness is? Of all of the years, the, the several thousand years, or it, without it, it seems to be a, a fairly despondent, barren wasteland where this happiness word is almost useless. <laughs> no, I mean not at all. I mean I think I think you could live a life with without happiness. I mean I think okay, so my my, my best sort of definition of, of happiness there's not really a definition, but there's this sort of back and forth between uh, Vladimir and Estragon in uh, Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot. And I think this is really a great illustration of what happiness is. So I think it's Vladimir who goes uh, first to, to Estragon or the other way around. Anyway, he goes uh, say that say that you're happy and why well just say that you're happy okay i am happy say it again i am happy okay we are happy and then they say we are happy and then estragon goes what should we do now now that we're happy and i i love that line because i mean i think i think that really you know if we become happy, the question is, okay, what do we do now now that we're happy? <laughs> and and I think it points to, to kind of the, I mean, it's it's such a powerful concept because, and it really, I think it's really a, a guiding principle for how we live our lives. Mm-hmm. And and in that sense, I mean, I think I think it's important because it, it really constitutes the templates for what, what we consider to be a good life as opposed to a bad life. Uh, which of course is, is contingent on on the culture we, we live in, but uh, I believe you could live without a clear uh, definition of happiness, and instead um, use other words such as meaning, or you could use uh, you know words such as love or or friendship. I mean, I think we we do have enough concepts to guide us uh, in, in our pursuit to live meaningful, good, uh, fulfilling uh, lives in whatever way we like to do that. But, but happiness is just such a broad and vague, abstract term that is now, I think, used and have been for a long time by politicians and corporations in, in very cunning and uh, disingenuous ways so i mean I'm, I'm quite tempted to think that happiness is something we could leave to uh the people uh, working on the next advertisement for mm. uh a, a soft drink or um some some fast food and then 
the rest of us could could live happily. Yeah, yeah, in whatever uh, for, whatever form that is. It's it's interesting that you talk about this kind of meta term of happiness, and it it sounds to me an awful lot like someone saying you need to be good at sports and in no way does me telling you that you need to be good at sports help you become a good runner or become a good cyclist because sports and the achievement of being good at sports is created by a much more granular set of effects that build up towards that. Mm. And I think, yeah, it's a a very, a very interesting view to have that. that. I mean, I'm sure everybody who is listening and probably you yourself at some point on social media will have seen the quote, uh, happiness is the path, not the destination. Mm. And to, in a, one of this weird twists of fate that this incredibly, um, Instagram worthy sort of, it sounds like the sort of thing that you could buy at Ikea, um, quote actually isn't, isn't a million miles away. If what I'm to, take that you've said today is true happiness is a set of guiding principles in fact to a degree happiness is almost the um optimizer it's the pinnacle of the optimization optimization strategy and you aim you aim your trajectory towards that Mm. and along the way you pick up the appropriate prerequisites to meet happiness and as long as you don't expect it to ever arrive, what actually happens is you find fulfillment in the small tasks that you accomplish along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that that could that could be one way of of of, of doing it, definitely. But I mean, I think I think happiness, or I mean, another term which which some people uh, prefer to use, and and I would agree with them, is is joy, where where joy is is something that could arrive in, in a more spontaneous way and i think some people have argued and, and pascal bruckner is, is one uh, lynn siegel is, is another and i agree with with both of them that what we need to be able to do is to be open to and uh, and not push happiness or, or joy away but at the same time being quite careful with how happiness and uh, immersing yourself uh you know doing everything you can to achieve happiness is, is also in in many ways dangerous because it could it could lead you astray i mean because uh, there's so many people who will you know tell you what what a happy life is i mean i think another definition of this of course is is from a sort of feminist uh, movement how how a happy uh, woman has been very uh, closely bound up with how a woman should be like. Mm-hmm, you know, it's mm-hmm, the happy mm-hmm. housewife, and her happiness is bound up exclusively with making sure that the family is happy, that the man would have her his uh, clean dinner on the table, ira, dinner on the table, and there's really no happiness at all for <laughs> for that <laughs> housewife. I mean, if you if if you go back and, and read read the studies about how housewives felt in the 1950s, I mean, they felt anything but but happiness. But still, they were really that model of of happiness. I mean, another example would be um, gay people. And there's a sorry for all this name dropping, but it's just but Sarah Throw Ahmed wrote this Sarah Ahmed wrote this book, uh, The Promise of Happiness, and 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 she makes a really good point, I think, where. Uh, how some parents would speak to the gay people that, well, you know, I just want you to be happy. 
which is a euphemism for just please keep your sexual identity to yourself and live a normal heterosexual life. So this uh, desire to be happy and and follow the route of happiness could also be extraordinarily constraining Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we have so specific ideas of what it means to be happy and our sort of happiness fantasies, as I call it in this book, tend to be very regulating. And you could be happy in, in, in a number of different ways, but not too many different different ways. You need to, you need to act it out according to uh, an accepted formula. So in that sense, and this is interesting if you look at the feminist movement, because they were very rarely speak about happiness, but rather about freedom. Yeah. And, and for them, it would even be, if you take the housewife example, freedom from happiness because happiness to them <laughs> or the kind of happiness fantasies that they were being trapped inside yeah. were just miserable. They just produced misery. And uh, so I think, you know, it might come a day where I will embrace happiness fully again. <laughs> but, but, but for now, I think, um, uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still waiting and, and keenly so to see new happiness fantasies to arrive of, of new templates of what a meaningful life look like, which are you know less individualistic mm-hmm. than they are at the moment, which are less focused on competitiveness, which are less focused on on self mastery, mm-hmm. and instead more focused, I think, on on vulnerability, on on love, on um, precariousness. I mean, how we really are deeply dependent on on each other, and a more sort of communal and collective idea of how we want to live together i mean that to me is is what hopefully uh future happiness fantasy would would look like what whose feet do you think this falls at in terms of us um planting the flag on what proper happiness or your potential remodeling of happiness there could be is it a top down is it governments is it education is it the individual's responsibility to realize this do you understand what i mean this movement needs to come from somewhere in exactly the yeah. same way as it was potentially led astray by some mm. ideas that have occurred within the last couple of hundred years the same mm. thing needs to happen again to send it back in the right direction have you got an mm. idea of where that trajectory could come from well i mean i think i think that's the sort of very very sort of basic question of of sociology and, and social and, and political change and, and and even though there would be no uh you know definite account of, of how those changes um emerge i mean they, they're always going to be an interplay of of, of, of a huge number of, of actors you know mm-hmm. uh and and uh I, I wouldn't be able to 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 speculate exactly how uh such um a phenomenon is gonna uh, gonna manifest itself yeah no but I mean, I, I just think that the kind of happiness fantasy we have now, which I trace back to the 1920s in this figure of, of Wilhelm Reich mm-hmm. and really comes to fruition in the 1960s and 1970s, have now developed in the age of Trump, who's also someone who really endorsed these values of our present day happiness fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, that it, it's really come to... Uh, a point where we need other templates for happy happy lives and of course there are other uh templates out there but i think the one that uh have been so dominant in 
um, the large parts of the 20th century and, and, and up to today uh, would really need to be challenged in a more uh, radical way than, than it has. And um, and we'll we'll see where where that may come from, <laughs> or, or or if if it won't come from from anywhere, or may not. Yeah. Um. So, Carl, I I've absolutely loved this. I, I I like how we can see the trajectory from the wellness syndrome, then moving into what you did with the optimization, and then it, it does seem like there's an awful lot. Consider if you'd said in advance that these three books have all got. Uh, an awful lot in common i would have probably struggled to 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 work out where it would go but it does sound like there's a, a certainly a, a story arc to what you're looking at or what you've been researching over the last few years it's very nicely tied together well thank you i mean i think i think that's this has been been a, an occupation and uh happiness and 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 health and self-help culture and, and how central that they are to our present day culture and uh, finding ways to just understand it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I understand completely. Would you be able to tell the listeners at home where they can find you online? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of on, on Twitter. That's it, really. I mean, apart from that, I'm not, a very, I'm not very present on, online. You're a ghost. Uh, in, you're a ghost in the dark. That's what you are. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm out there. Okay. I guess. <laughs> so I'll I'll make sure I'll make sure that the link to your Twitter is in the show notes. Um when is the Happiness Fantasy being released because I've got a manuscript version on my Kindle at the uh, moment. I'm going to guess it's not that one that's going out. I think I think I mean I I just got an advanced copy a few days ago. So okay. I think it's coming out in in a couple of weeks probably. Fantastic. Well, I will make sure that the uh, will there be a pre-order link up on Amazon? Um yeah, there should be something like that. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure <laughs> you can kill it. You can kill the publishers if not. Um, I will make sure that the link to desperately seeking self improvement, the wellness syndrome, and the happiness fantasy, or potentially the email address of your publishers, so everyone can send them a nasty email, is going to be in the show notes below. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been an absolute blast, Carl. I, I've, I've really enjoyed all of the insights and good luck with whatever you move on to next. I'm, I'm sure it's yeah. going to be very interesting. Thank you, Chris. Really Thanks enjoyed. Time. Cheers. Okay. Cheers.